0: Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles to two places this morning? Uh, we're going to be reading from First Peter. First Peter chapter one. And then we'll turn to our principal text today, Matthew chapter twenty-six. <clears throat> and verses sixty-nine through seventy-five. But first, 1 Peter, chapter 1 verses 3 through 7, would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? This is the word of God, let's give it our attention. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 69 through 75, as we finish out the chapter. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. What do you want... Preached at your funeral? If you could choose the passage of Scripture in advance, what would it be? I mentioned that next week we'll have Pastor Eric Watkins with us. Pastor Eric is one of my best friends. And a few years ago we had the occasion, um, following the death of a mutual friend, to reflect on what we would want the other to preach at our funeral. Um, God forbid we die together in a car accident. (laughs) I I don't know who preached the gospel. Um, It it may seem morbid, right, to reflect on that, but I think it's actually quite a wonderful thing to think about what you would want preached at your funeral. Uh, Eric chose Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which speaks of our having been raised with Christ, so that we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, because we have died, and our lives are hidden with Christ and God. It's a beautiful passage. For my part, I have chosen the passage that we just read in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 3-7. I know you were thinking I was going to say, I've chosen the denials of Peter. <laughs> I haven't. I've chosen what I think is Peter's reflection... On his denials. Uh, I've chosen 1 Peter 1 3 through 7, first because it's doxological. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives glory to God. And uh, that's what I want at my funeral. Secondly, because it beautifully orients us toward heaven. And to the resurrection, according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And finally, I chose it because it so wonderfully reminds God's people that it is not only the heavenly inheritance that is being kept for us, but it is we who are being kept for the inheritance, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. Through the faith that God himself supplies, God is guarding us for salvation. And in that way, it becomes one of the most clear and beautiful expressions of that doctrine of the perseverance and preservation of the saints. That doctrine that reminds us that God's people, those who have been chosen in Christ and redeemed in Christ and renewed by His Holy Spirit, are also kept through faith by the power of God. As Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And I think that there is just something particularly fitting that it is the Apostle Peter that the Holy Spirit inspired to write these words. Peter, who had so personally experienced this guarding power of God, keeping him and preserving him, through this spectacular fall. A Peter whose story of stumbling is recounted in all four of the gospel accounts. What is your most epic spiritual collapse? Imagine that collapse being published in the most read book of all time. Four times. As a testimony, not only to your weakness, but as a testimony to to the almighty power of God to keep you. Peter, who in spite of this great collapse that we see today, will go on to speak of having a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so I hope that as we consider this passage today, that the Lord would use it in our lives to make us all the more watchful, to make us more watchful about the dangers of pride and of spiritual lethargy, but also to make us more appreciative of the extravagant grace of God offered to us in Christ. And so as we look at this epic collapse of Peter, uh, we'll consider it under the following points. First, the demand for Peter. The demand for Peter as we consider the spiritual backdrop of this collapse. Secondly, the denials of Peter as we look at the details of the collapse itself, and then finally, the deliverance of Peter, as we consider the way in which the Lord would ultimately use this collapse of Peter to give him both a truer sense of his own need, and a truer sense of his Savior, and a way to help his brothers, even us. And so, uh, first, the demand, then the, the denials, and then the deliverance. As as we uh, begin to look at this demand here, I want, to, I want us to appreciate the spiritual backdrop that hangs behind this encounter. Collapses don't happen in a vacuum, do they? Uh, collapses are cultivated. And, and, and that is true for Peter. Peter would later write to the churches about their need for humility And this is what he would say. He would say, be sober-minded and be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, It's interesting to me that Peter uses the same language that Jesus used in the garden that night with Peter when he said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And now Peter is telling the churches. Be watchful. Your enemy, your adversary, is on the prowl. Was Peter watchful that night? No, he and the other disciples slept. They're sleeping a sort of picture of their spiritual lethargy, unaware and unafraid of the adversary who was on the prowl. The point is that the collapse here is part of a bigger spiritual battle. Uh, The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, right? We wage war against the principalities and powers of darkness in this present evil age. And Peter should have been aware of that because Jesus explicitly warned him of this. Uh, In Luke's gospel, he tells us that he said to him, Simon, Simon, behold... Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, just a couple of things about that statement. Uh, First is that the you there, Satan has demanded to have you, is plural. He addresses Simon, but he's really speaking of all of the disciples. And in a way, he's speaking of us. Satan wants us. He wants to sift us like wheat. And that image itself is a pretty graphic image. It's an image that the prophet Amos used when the Lord said that he would shake Israel uh, like one shakes with a sieve. When wheat was sifted, the head of the grain was, was torn apart and separated from the chaff. I think an, an English equivalent idiom might be that he wants to pick them apart. Uh, He wants to take them to pieces. That Satan wants to make a shipwreck of the disciples' faith, to sift them and to pick them apart and to bring them to spiritual ruin. That's what he wants for Peter. It's what he wanted for all the disciples, and it's what he wants for us. We are not ignorant of the devil's designs, Paul says. And how did Peter respond to that warning from Christ. When Jesus warns you, you should take that seriously. How did Peter respond to that direct warning? Did he respond with humility? With sober-minded watchfulness as he will later command? No, he responded with just the opposite. He responded with pride and with a overconfidence in his own abilities. Lord, I'm willing to go with you both to prison and to death. Lord, though all of these other disciples fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Satan is prowling. Satan wants to sift him like wheat. And Jesus has warned him to be watchful and to be humble and to be prayerful. And yet Peter has responded not only with spiritual lethargy, but with spiritual pride. And that is a deadly cocktail. How many of you know that when you are overconfident, prayerless, unwatchful, and proud, that you are setting yourself up to get wrecked? When we are overconfident, prayerless, unwatchful, and proud, that is a recipe for disaster. The devil wants to sift us like wheat. And Peter's not ready for it. He's demanding of Peter. And what's amazing is that Jesus, like he did for Job, gives the devil the opportunity. We'll come back to that. In a little while. But for now, let's go on to talk about the denials of Peter. Peter had said that he was ready to go to prison and to death. Well, here he's given a prime opportunity. Uh, Because in verse 58, we learn that Peter, as he came into the courtyard of the high priest, he goes and he sits down among the guards, right? Among those who are dressed with swords and clubs, the very people who had arrested Jesus in the garden. And here he is sitting in the midst of these powerful men, and yet it is not the interrogation of one of these powerful guards that begins to unravel him. It's rather the identification of him by this powerless young servant girl. Verse 69, as Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. She's not asking a question. She's making a statement, right? She knows that he was with Jesus. And what does Peter do? Well, he pulls the oldest trick in the book, right? He feigns ignorance. What? Who? Me? I, I do not even know what you mean. Now, it's a denial, to be sure. Matthew makes it clear. He denied it before them all but it's not really an outright denial, is it? It's more of an attempt to deflect, to divert attention away from himself. Are you talking to me? I don't even, I don't even know what you're referring to. Matthew Henry says, This weasel way of talking is a species of lying that we are more prone to than any other. And Peter is already floundering. A young girl could not serve as a witness in a Jewish court. Her testimony would not even be allowed to stand. And yet he's completely undone. But I think, you know, I think the the important word in that is that little word, with. You were with Jesus. It drills down on what this sifting is all about. Is Peter with Jesus now is he loyal to him will he stand with him now in his hour of need Peter says I don't even know what you're talking about and he immediately tries to get out of Dodge but even as he's trying to get out and he's making his way out to the entrance of the courtyard now along comes another servant girl And unfortunately for Peter, this time she doesn't come to him directly. Instead, she turns to the others who are standing around, the bystanders, and says exactly the same thing. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He was with Jesus. Is he still with Jesus? As the pressure is being ratcheted up, is he still ready to go to prison and to death? Not even close. And now he moves from playing ignorant to denying it with an oath. An oath is a solemn promise, right? It's like when you raise your right hand in court and you you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Peter's truth is I don't know the man. I remember watching the, the Kavanaugh Um, trial. It wasn't a trial, but that's what it amounted to. And one of the senators spoke of the witness against him and said, she told her truth. There's, There's no such thing as her truth, or your truth, or my truth, or Peter's truth. There's only the truth. And Peter is against the truth. And so much so that it's now beginning to get a bit comical. Because it's in swearing to know the man that becomes his final undoing. In verse 73, the bystanders came to Peter and they said, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Galileans were known as having a very distinct local accent. Jesus and his disciples were all Galileans. They were all from the north. They are all visitors to the south in Jerusalem. In fact, this is how both of the servant girls identify Jesus. Jesus the Galilean. Jesus from Nazareth. Indeed, Jesus is the most famous Galilean who has ever lived. He's the greatest Galilean of all time. His reputation has preceded him to the south, and that's why this is a bit funny, because here's Peter in a perfect Galilean brogue claiming not to know the man. It's like hearing Mark Wahlberg in his perfect Boston accent, swearing that he's never heard of the Boston Celtics or Larry Bird. It's delusional, and everybody knows it, and yet sin is delusional. We think we can hide it. And so in his delusion, Peter begins to invoke a curse and swear, I do not know the man. Now, he's not swearing in the sense that he's cussing. You should not think of Peter dropping you know, bad words here. He's swearing in the sense that he is invoking God's presence and punishment. What is not exactly clear is who he is cursing. The ESV leads us in a certain direction. The ESV translates this as a reflexive. He began to invoke a curse on himself in which case, the meaning would be that he was swearing to God and calling God to punish him if he was lying. The difficulty with that is this cursing verb is almost never reflexive, it's ordinarily transitive, which just means it's all the more heinous and disturbing because it would mean that Peter is not invoking a curse on himself but that he's invoking a curse on Jesus. That he's joining in the cursing that is going on in the palace of Caiaphas. This friend, this one who once confessed Christ, now cursing him, and no sooner have the words left his mouth than we read, and immediately... The rooster crowed. Luke tells us that it was while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. How that look must have cut Peter to the heart. Suddenly, he's shaken from the delusion. And we're told that Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. I think that puts us in a good position to think about the deliverance of Peter here. And the deliverance of Peter begins with the rooster crowing. Matthew presents these accounts of Jesus and of Peter in in kind of an artistic way. Jesus is on trial inside the palace of Caiaphas. Three witnesses come. They're striking Jesus. They're spitting in his face and they're saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And just outside of that palace, Peter is on trial. And witnesses, three witnesses are coming to him. And while inside they are saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, outside one of his prophecies is coming true. Truly, I tell you tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times Who is it that struck you? The answer might well be Peter. As Jesus turns and looks at his friend, the blood still running down his face, the spit still clinging to his beard. "'Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee, I crucified thee.'" And so the rooster, the rooster becomes the servant of Christ to rouse Peter from his delusion and to break his heart. Sin leads to bitter tears. Sin leads to shame and to regret. Young people, do not believe the lie of the world that sin leads to pleasure. It does not. It leads to regret. It leads to shame. It leads to wreckage. But hopefully, it might also lead to repentance, to grief and sorrow for sin, for denying the one who never denies us. One commentator, it's Augustine actually, puts it like this uh, Peter is in a much healthier spiritual condition when he's weeping bitterly after his fall. Than he was when he was swearing undying loyalty to Jesus. He's actually in a better place. In one instance, he's swearing undying loyalty, in the other, he's weeping bitterly. And he's actually more spiritually healthy in his repentance than he is in that profession. And that's not to say that it's better to fall than to stand. It's always better to stand than to fall. It's just to say that when we repent after a fall, we're left with a truer sense of our need for Christ, a truer sense of God's grace to deliver us. And it's often these very trials that God uses to change us and to transform us. Bruner makes this pithy little statement that I love so much. He says, an unbroken Peter would have been an unbearable Peter. But God is willing to have his son broken that he might be healed. Why is it that God sometimes gives his children to be sifted by Satan? Why is it that sometimes he allows us to go through these fiery trials of faith? What does Peter say? When he writes to us in 1 Peter 3, he says, We endure these fiery trials so that our faith, though purified by fire, might be tested and might show itself out like gold. And remember that when Jesus warned Peter of Satan's demands, he didn't just warn him. He also made a promise. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen your brother." I am persuaded that when Peter later writes about being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed, he is reflecting on these words of Jesus because Peter knew what it was to be guarded through faith because he knew that Jesus was praying for him that his faith would not fail. That even as Satan did his worst to pick him apart and to sift him like wheat, That even as Peter was denying Jesus, Jesus was not denying Peter. Though Peter was not with Jesus, Jesus was most certainly with Peter. Praying for him, preserving him, guarding him through faith. And I love that Peter puts it that way, that by God's power we are being guarded through faith. Because what is faith after all? Faith is a gift that God himself supplies and it is a passive instrument. That is, it rests and receives another. Faith looks outside of itself. It's extrospective. It looks to someone else. Faith is only as strong as the one it looks upon. Faith looks to Jesus. Jesus. And when it does, it finds that Jesus is looking back. Peter's deliverance began to be realized as that rooster crowed and as he remembered the words of Christ, as he wept in his repentance and as faith began to rise. I think there is something just I've never reflected on this before, but I think there's something so wonderful that Jesus chooses a rooster to be the vehicle to bring about Peter's repentance. You know that Martin Luther's, his emblem was this rooster. And I think it's great. You know why? Well, let me put it in the form of a question. Do you think this is the last time Peter will ever hear a rooster? Peter's going to hear a rooster every morning for the rest of his life. Peter is going to wake up to a rooster crowing and reminding him of his weakness, of his need to depend upon Jesus. Peter is going to wake up to a rooster crowing and reminding him of his need to be humble and sober-minded and watchful and prayerful because his adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter is going to be woken up by a rooster and reminded every morning of the incredible, extravagant grace of God that is there for him. His mercies are new this morning with that rooster. It almost makes me want to get a rooster. Almost. In the absence of a rooster... May the Lord be pleased to use the crowing of Peter. What did Jesus say? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. And I believe that's exactly what Peter is doing in 1 Peter. As he's warning us to be sober-minded and to be watchful as he's warning us about our adversary, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, as he's calling us to remember that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. And Peter's letter ends with this beautiful benediction. He tells the people that you need to remember that you're suffering the same kinds of things that are being suffered by Christians throughout the whole world. But then he says these words, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, listen to it, will restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you. Sorry, restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the glory. Peter experienced all of those things and now he wants us to as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who restores, who confirms, who strengthens, and who establishes that all glory and honor is due to you, that we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for us. And you are not only reserving that inheritance, but you are preserving us. You are keeping us by God's almighty power through faith for this salvation. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you that... He endured all that He endured for us, and that in spite of our denials of Him, He does not deny us because He cannot deny Himself, and He is faithful, and He is true. And so, Lord, we pray that You would use even the crowing of Your servant uh, Peter today to remind us of Your grace and Your goodness and Your kindness and the need for watchfulness and repentance and Lord, that you would build us up in these things, that you would indeed restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. To you be the glory. Amen. I think the Lord delights to give reminders, right? Even as he gave the rooster to be a constant and perpetual reminder to Peter, he gives the Lord's Supper to his whole church to be a constant, perpetual reminder of the curse that he endured for our sins. The bread represents the body of our Lord, and as it comes to us today, it comes to us broken and torn to pieces, sifted like wheat, as it were. And the wine represents the blood of Christ, and as it comes to us, it comes to us poured out. And so we have this constant perpetual reminder before us of the body and blood of our Savior that is given for us. That he takes the curse that is due to us for sin and he gives us in exchange this blessing. And so as we come to the table today, we should let our faith rise, right? God is guarding us through faith. And this is a meal which is meant to encourage your faith and strengthen your faith. Uh, Even if you've had a week of stumbling, Right. Even if you've had a week where you have denied Christ, turn, repent of your sins, look to Christ, allow your faith to rise and to rest upon Him. And do that in this meal. This meal is for those who have faith in Christ, who trust in Him for salvation. And so I would ask you this morning before you come, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you belong to his church? Have you been baptized into this body of Christ or to another faithful body of Christ? Do you have his name put upon you? Uh, Do you belong to him as one of his own that that the Father says has been given to me? Uh, And not only have you been baptized, but uh, are you walking in faith and in repentance? Uh, do you long to be free of your sins? Is there nothing more that you hope for for that final day? This meal is meant as an encouragement to you. And so if you belong to Christ, if you're a, a professing member of His church in good standing, then we welcome you to come and to join us at this table. But if those things, things are not true of you, let me encourage you to abstain. Abstain. But I would also call upon you to look to Christ in faith because he says whoever calls upon him, he will by no means cast out. Uh, And so today as we come to this table, let's ask then that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, uh, we come with humility uh, because we know that we do not deserve to be here and yet you invite us to be here and you even call us to come and to Find grace and mercy to help in time of need. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, use this remembrance of your death and of your resurrection on our behalf to stir up in us not only faith, but that living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we pray that as we partake of these elements with faith, that you would uh, cause all of the blessings that you have gained on our behalf uh, to be uh, realized truly and spiritually by us, that we might receive Christ himself and all that he has done. And so we ask these things then in Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.